I'm Tokumba Adibui, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. This episode, we're exploring Sustainable Development Goal 13, Climate Action, to become less reliant on fossil fuels and invest in more sustainable solutions. We already know that the Earth is getting warmer. The last five years were the hottest on record. But what you might not know is Canada's colossal role in all of it. When you look at our emissions per capita, Canada is one of the world's largest emitters of greenhouse gas. Since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015, our emissions actually went up. And the majority of that comes from burning fossil fuels. But consider this. We're also home to some of the places and people who are most at risk from a warming climate. For this episode, we're focusing on how climate change threatens human rights in the North and how looking to Inuit leadership could help correct Canada's course. The Arctic is warming at twice the global rate, and this is having a devastating impact on Inuit, whose lives are directly connected to the fragile northern environment. This year, temperatures in the Arctic were extreme, and in case you didn't know, Canada's last fully intact ice shelf just collapsed. According to glaciologists who monitor the ice caps in Canada's Arctic, quote, it basically disintegrated. Scientists explain what happens in the Arctic doesn't just stay in the Arctic. In fact, how quickly ice melts up north has a huge impact on conditions down south, like sea level rise, flooding, temperature increases, and other extreme weather conditions. And with COVID-19 meaning scientists can't access the far north and do necessary fieldwork, more than ever, partnerships with northern indigenous communities are proving vital for us to know what's going on on the ground in real time in Canada's north. The government has pledged net zero emissions by 2050. But what does that mean for those in need now? Inuit are risking their lives and livelihoods. A warming climate jeopardizes food security. Thinning ice makes travel and hunting extremely dangerous. And as permafrost thaws, it even threatens vital infrastructure. Sila Watt-Cloutier is a human rights expert and respected Inuit leader. She's the former chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council, the organization that represents all the Inuit in Canada, Greenland, Alaska, and Chukotka. We reached out to Sila to discuss why it's important to look to the past when planning for a sustainable future. Before we begin, I just want to know, how would you like to be addressed? There's no SH sound in my language, in Inuktitut, so everybody just calls me Sila. So it's Sheila, but it's in, my, in the way that we pronounce my name here. We reached Sila over the phone one early afternoon last December. She was at her home in Kujwak, Nunavik, a part of northern Quebec where the tree line meets the Arctic tundra. So my humble beginnings began by a very traditional way of life, uh, traveling only by dog team the first 10 years of my life. Mm. And we were hunting and fishing and gathering. And so that's where I began my life and the bonding with our culture and with the land and the sky and the waters all started very young. And uh, that connection to our way of life was bonded very early. It's that bond Sila talks about that's propelled her life's work. And throughout her career, she's always paid special attention to the health of the people in her community. In the 1970s and 80s, high levels of persistent organic pollutants, or POPs, started showing up unexpectedly in the Arctic. POPs go into the manufacturing of products like pesticides and plastics. These products are commonly used in the South, far away from the Arctic. 
These toxins, you know, byproduct of industry and pesticides were showing up in our food chain, in our marine mammals in particular, but in our bodies because we ingest marine mammals. What Sila is talking about is how because of the way pollutants get trapped in the Arctic environment, animals like seal, caribou and Arctic char were found to contain high levels of POPs. These same animals make up the traditional diets of Arctic indigenous people. Marine mammals are what keeps us very warm in minus 50 and gives us highly nutritious, nutritious food, which is very whole um, with all kinds of vitamins and minerals. Mm -hmm. And it was starting to show up in our bodies and nursing milk of our mothers. And of course, you know, many people were involved in that work 10 years prior with the science and the data working with our communities and the, and the uh, Health Canada long before I entered into the arena of uh, elected in international politics. But when I did, the timing was, was at the time when the UN was starting to negotiate the treaty that would bring, you know, 100 countries together to try to eliminate at their source these kinds of toxins. A 1997 government study found that 65% of women in the Baffin region of Nunavut had unsafe levels of these toxins in their blood. And what's found in the bodies of mothers can get passed in utero and through breast milk onto the next generation, leading to certain cancers, birth defects, and immune and reproductive problems. Humanizing this issue was a daunting task because it was a chemical story, an environmental story. And for us, it was first and foremost a health story, a health issue, a human issue. And so we were able to get people to see it from that perspective. And we were quite influential, actually. Sila became a spokesperson for this issue and took it to the world stage. She represented the northern indigenous peoples, including the Métis, Dene, Athabascans, and the Russian indigenous peoples. This work led to the signing of the Stockholm Convention in 2001. In case you don't know, that's the treaty that restricts the use of persistent organic pollutants worldwide. This treaty was especially important because it acknowledged the vulnerability of Arctic ecosystems and the indigenous people who are impacted by their contamination. But it's one of the the UN treaties at the time was one of the first to have been signed, ratified and enforced in a short period of time because we were able to bring that human face uh, to the issue. And climate change is the same. Nowhere else in the world are the two so aligned and so uh, parallel because they're both about health and cultural survival. Fast forward to 2005 and the stakes are even higher. Sila has expanded her focus from environmental pollutants to global warming. She serves the U.S. government with a legal petition representing indigenous communities from Canada and Alaska. This is the world's first legal action against climate change and argued that the unchecked release of greenhouse gases violated human rights. By connecting the loss of wildlife and livelihood to climate change, Sila made an environmental issue a human rights issue. Even though they didn't move ahead with that legal petition, I think we were able to change the discourse on the issue of climate change as a human rights issue. And although in the beginning people couldn't quite make the linkage, it became mainstream language within a very short period of time in the, the, you know, five years or so. And now, of course, it is mainstream language and people see it as such. Even though this legal petition got initially dismissed, it changed how we talk about the environment. This might seem obvious now, but think back to the mid-2000s. The way we talked about environmental stress and global warming was very specific. Lots of big graphs and statistics. But the work Sila did changed the conversation. 
We often think of human society and the environment as two separate things, but Sila has been working nonstop to change that. In 2015, she wrote a book called The Right to be Cold. Inuit of my generation have lived in both the Ice Age and the Space Age. The modern world arrived slowly in some places in the world and quickly in others. But in the Arctic, it appeared in a single generation. It's a memoir of what it was like growing up in the Canadian Arctic during a time of rapid industrialization and chronicles her experience advocating against climate change. Like everyone I grew up with, I have seen ancient traditions give way to Southern habits. I have seen communities blown apart or transformed dramatically by government policies. I have seen Inuit traditional wisdom supplanted by Southern programs and institutions. And most shockingly, like all my fellow Inuit, I have seen what seems permanent begin to melt away. So you wrote your book back in 2015. And looking to the future, what does the right to be cold mean going into 2021? It has the same meaning as it did when I <laughs> wrote the book and even before that. Mm. Uh, because it's our right as Inuit to be who we are our right to health, our right to safety, our right to security, our right to educate, our right to homes, all of those rights that are already entrenched in international law. But you know, the right to be cold for Inuit connects everyone else's right to a healthy environment and climate. Mm. You know, we're very few people. We're 165,000 Inuit in the entire world who live in Russia, Alaska, Canada, and Greenland. Very few people know who we are, much less what globalization and the impact it has on our lives and our livelihoods. So the historical traumas that we as people have come through, you know, the human trauma and planet trauma are one of the same. Yeah, We went from being hunters and providers for our families, living a very remarkable life to one that had to then start to meet the global markets with this Hudson's Bay Company post with the fur. Uh, but mm. the historical traumas that followed after, as, as I, uh, you know, chronicle in my book about the, the dog slaughters and sending us off to school out of our homes and family and culture. And I was one of them at the age of 10 when I was first sent away for school. And that lasted eight years in three different settings, different places in, in southern Canada. So when I arrived home after five years for Christmas for the first time, the dogs were gone. And in its place were these very noisy machines that I wasn't accustomed to and was quite terrified of them, to be honest. And nobody spoke about these kinds of traumas for for decades. And it was only in my adult life when this it really started to be talked about and surfaced in meetings that were happening, only to realize that there was going to then be an inquiry into all of that. So the voices of the hunters who were still alive were going to be able to tell their stories of that time. Of course, these authorities used the excuse that the dogs were, were dangerous and that they were sick and so on. But it really has shown in the inquiries that have been done that there was nothing wrong with these dogs and that it was kind of this overall, once again, colonialistic way of trying to get us back and staying in the communities. Let's take a minute and talk about the inquiry Sila mentioned. It's known as the Hikitani Truth Commission. It was the first independent truth commission of its kind, led by an indigenous organization. 
350 people testified about how Canadian government decisions and policy forever changed life in the North. In addition to the trauma of forced relocations, residential schools, and broken promises of safe settlements, one of the most important events to come to light was the killing of sled dogs. Sela describes how, in some cases, elders said the dogs were shot while hunters were still out on the land, which meant they had no means to return to their families. Remember, it's sled dogs that allowed Inuit to hunt and stay connected to the land. And, and that was very traumatic for, for many of the hunters and families that went through that. And they didn't express that trauma for many, many years to come. But it was really the start of the, the incredible wounding of, of the, you know, the spirit and the integrity and the self-worthiness of being able to provide for your families and the dignity of it all and not being able to have any control over some of those things that happened. And that, and that same goes for um, the, the relocations, the forced relocations under the pretense that they, these families were going to be sent back home in a couple of years. Um, and yet, you know, they, had, they remained in these places that they would never have chosen for themselves way far up in the high, high Arctic where it was dark all the time in the name of sovereignty. Mm. And they were coming from places like Nunavik where it's quite lush and, and, and lots of wildlife. And, and it's the ingenuity and the resiliency of Inuit that really allowed them to survive in those kinds of settings and adapt uh, but it was very hard and very harsh. And the, the, the kind of treatment they received from the authorities and the RCMP up there was, I mean, really stark stories that do come out now from all of those years before. Forcing Inuit into settlements created long-term insecurity. Without dog teams, many Inuit were unable to provide for their families. And relocating children for school meant families were separated and children got disconnected from their culture and language. Sela remembers how, when she came back from residential school, the sled dogs were replaced by fossil fuel-guzzling snowmobiles and trucks, a stark symbol of how what might be considered progress to some can instead lead to long-term damage and impending danger for a people, and ultimately, the environment. And then, of course, you know, we're, we're grappling with all of those issues, and now comes a second wave of tumultuous change uh, on our way of life, which is climate change. And uh, because we mm. are a people who still depend and rely upon the healthiness of our climate and our environment for our food source and combined are just an awful lot for an entire people to be facing today. And, and they remain that challenge today because of the environmental degradation that has happened. You have a, a segment where you say, and I quote, all too often... Those who are out to save the world are all too ready to sacrifice Inuit and our way of life. And I think that touches upon how are we making these changes culturally relevant to these groups? And, and I think historically and, and currently, there are cultural biases as how land is meant to be used. Uh, this could be land use. This could be conservation. This could also be animals yeah. um, and the roles that they play in survival. Mm -hmm. um, could, could you comment on your experiences with this? Have you sensed a northerner, southerner kind of divide in this sense? Yes, absolutely. That's why I, I never consider myself an activist or an environmentalist. 
Um, I, I always say that I, I'm an advocate for environment, for culture and human rights uh, from that perspective, because there's kind of a connotation to activism that, you know, that you're out there protesting against all kinds of things, uh, in particular against animal hunting and so on, uh, without really thinking that there are people on this planet who still rely upon wildlife for their food source. You know, we have these animal rights movements that really in the in the 60s destroyed the seal skin marketing. Yeah. You know, our hunters went from making $18,000 a year to zero overnight and then starting to become dependent on social welfare. And that was a remarkable culture match, by the way, uh, you know, where hunters were, you know, feeding their families. But the byproduct of the hunt, if there was a surplus, were able to sell the pelts. Mm. And again, we I want to go back to the power of the hunting culture because it, you know, it isn't just about the technical aspect of the hunt that you go out, teach your children about, you know, how to aim the gun or the harpoon or how to navigate precarious situations on the ice, the snow, and to become a proficient provider for your family. But it's also about the character building skills and the life skills that are needed when you're out there and you're being taught, you know, as you're waiting for the animals to surface and the winds to die and and the snow to fall, the ice to form, you're being taught patience. You're being taught endurance and courage and how to be bold under pressure, how to build resiliency and your coping skills. And you're ultimately, you're developing your sound judgment and your wisdom. And wisdom is the hallmark of Inuit teachings and culture. And so those skills that you learn out on the land are very transferable to the modern world. In fact, they're a requirement. And we're starting to see the connections between, you know, younger generation that haven't had any of that are much more vulnerable. So this isn't just about polar bears and ice. This is really about our families and our children that we're trying to keep strong so that they can embrace life and not take it. And we are known to have the highest suicide rates in North America. So this is a big deal for us. So when people start to negate, uh, you know, us hunting, saying, oh, just go and start being like everybody else and buy your food wrapped in cellophane, we say, no, why should we be the ones to change? We don't Mm. think that we've got it wrong. We don't disrespect the environment around us. We stand on these values and principles. You know, when you're on white snow and they see blood, you know, people from an urban setting will come very squeamish and go, oh, this is horrible. This is horrific. And we Mm. say, no, for us, when we see blood on the white ice or snow, it's not a confirmation of death. It's affirmation of life. And it's life giving life. And that's how we see it. And that's how we respect our animals as well. And I think more than ever, like you, you've touched on a lot of things there. But when we talk about modern ways of getting food from a grocery store, we see how during something like, I don't know, a pandemic, that that kind of system can fall apart. Whereas if we are looking at more um, sustainable and traditional means of gathering food, we find that that is actually the better way to go. Uh-huh. On, on that topic, following up on climate change as it affects hunters, you had said it's not just about ice, it's not just about food, but like there's also that sense of identity that is lost. And for the climate change aspect, there's also diminishing ice to even be traveling and to even be hunting, um, yeah. destruction of habitat. Yeah. It's It's such a broad reaching topic and it's so immediate to that community. Whereas here Mm -hmm. in the South, we might be able to think of climate change as something a bit more abstract. 
Or even welcomed. Right. Oh, like, oh, I could deal with some milder winters. I'm in Edmonton, Alberta. Like that, that's a very, (laughs) it's a very privileged thought. I can wear my t-shirt and shorts in November. I like this, you know? Yeah. And it's, and it's, again, it's a very kind of short-term way of thinking. It is. It is. And it's not looking at the larger picture for sure. But yes, you know, my life's work has been about humanizing these issues where most times, you know, of course you only see it in terms of economics or science or politics, you know? Right. And in your your book, you mentioned traditional IQ, these um, Inuit traditional knowledge where things like patience and thoughtfulness and an appreciation for silence, which I really liked when you mentioned, like these kinds of values mm-hmm. are sewn into the way that Inuit communities will operate, will hunt, will live. And when you talk about that, I think about things like steady state economics, things that are meant to be more about sustainability um, as opposed to infinite growth. How do you feel that Inuit knowledge can be embraced by these modern industries and governments to make more sustainable decisions overall? Well, one of the things that I'm very impressed by, and I share this very often now because I have much regard for this young leader up in Nunavut, PJ Acherok, who has just recently, over the last year or so, before COVID, of course, where we, we could travel and negotiate with governments and so on. One of the things he and his team, you know, along with Sandra Inutik, uh, his, who was his lawyer, she's Inuk from Nunavut, uh, negotiated this remarkable agreement uh, based on conservation economies. Mm. In other words, you know, they've negotiated certain areas of Baffin Island to be protected, the waters and the land around it to be protected from oil and gas exploration that can be very destructive to all the marine mammals that exist up there and that we still rely and depend on for our food source. And the way in which they did that is quite remarkable. It has such potential Sila mentioned something called conservation economies. This is where the community is invested in preserving natural resources and using these sustainably to build local wealth. That can bring jobs for local conservationists and Inuit-led research, for example. Sila is referring to a specific example on the northern edge of Baffin Island. It's one of the few remaining places on Earth that's expected to have year-round ice coverage, and it's a vital habitat for all the animals we think of when we picture the Arctic. But this way of moving towards conservation economies is quite remarkable in the sense that it would be hunters who know the land, like the palm of their hand, the waters, and they would be hired to guard those protected areas. And there would be no, you know, uh, disconnect between their culture and the way in which they would work every day and they'd be paid for it. And so I think we need to to really explore this even further. If you can look to Inuit culture, but all indigenous cultures of the world in particular, uh, you would see that these are the way in which we can recreate or reestablish and reimagine and realign economic values everywhere based on the values of indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it may sound simplistic, but really in reality, we have to go back to the basics now uh, and to be able to reconnect. You know, indigenous wisdom really is the medicine we seek in, mm. in healing our planet and also uh, in terms of our economies. We're not just victims of globalization, nor do we wish to be. We want to be able to offer and be at the same tables, equal tables with those who are trying to negotiate a new world order, you know, of of doing things differently. 
And one of the things that I want to share with you, a story, if I may. Absolutely. I was on a panel with Tim Flannery. He's a wonderful climatologist. And after our, our panel discussion, he was asked by an audience member, what is lacking in our world, you know, when we know that the science is so strong today? And I may add, these are my own words collaborated by Indigenous peoples, that there's major climatic changes that are very dangerous. What is it about us, the audience member said, what is lacking in us not to be able to take urgent action to address climate change? And his Mm -hmm. response was imagination, imagining that we can do things differently, imagining that we can create eco-friendly, sustainable ways in which to develop. Imagine that we can connect to one another differently. You know, and and I would add, we need to reimagine and realign those values to Indigenous values, who, again, you know, the basis of respect for one another, to be able to understand our environment so well. Let's go back to the basics and go back to the people and not just see them as victims to all of these things, but let's tap into that wisdom and we can move forward together on a common humanity. That's what this is about. I, I wanna just thank you for sharing all of this insight and this wisdom. This has been very, very valuable. Thank you. Thank you. Now, do I, do I shut this off? We don't often get to do this, point out who and what went into how we talk about an issue. Sometimes the behind-the-scenes people can get missed from the history books. Sila is instrumental in how we talk about the issue of climate today. In her words, quote, The future of Inuit is the future of the rest of the world. Our home is a barometer for what is happening to our entire planet. And by listening to her, it becomes clear that we can't separate people from the environment or exclude them from the conversation. Yes, we are all in this together, but there is a divide between who feels climate change most acutely and who holds the most responsibility. The UN Secretary General has said, quote, making peace with nature is the defining task of the 21st century. Adapting and managing the impact of climate change is a large part of Canada's commitment to the 2030 goals. But for that commitment to be truly sustainable, we need to incorporate indigenous knowledge and leadership to find solutions that work for everyone. Because, like Sila says, everyone benefits from a frozen Arctic. My name is Tokumba Adibui, and this has been No Little Plans, a podcast from the Community Foundations of Canada. Special thanks to Rachel Sipola Michael of Ihaluit Nunavut for lending her voice to this episode and reading Sila's words beautifully. This show is produced by Ellen Payne Smith. Our associate producer is Sabrina Brathwaite. Katie Jensen is our executive producer. Our music is by Elcon. This show is a project of Strategic Content Labs. If you want to learn more about the SDGs, go to alliance2030.ca. It's a website created by Community Foundations of Canada to track SDG efforts by communities across Canada. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share, as it helps other people find the show. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at No Little Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts and join us as we look at the big plan to reshape the world.